This is a Jewish TV channel presentation. Welcome to Talking Point, where controversial subjects are brought into sharp focus. Conversations with JTVC show host Laura Kessler comes up next. Welcome to Talking Point. I'm Laura Kessler. Today's show is very special to me on a lot of levels. For much of my career until now, I've worked actively in the arts and entertainment industry. I wasn't attracted to it simply because I liked music and film, but also because from the time I was a child, I understood the natural power art has to provide education, unity, cultural transformation, and even healing. There's just something special, unique, and symbolic about entertainment and sports that no political activism will ever rival. When Billy Joel performed that first concert in the former Soviet Union behind the Iron Curtain, everybody knew it was much more than just a rock concert. And when the New York Philharmonic went to North Korea after George W. Bush declared them the axis of evil, and they performed Gershwin, the Star-Spangled Banner, and the North Korean National Anthem, it was widely hailed as a diplomatic event. When leaders of India and Pakistan sit together and share a booth at the World Cup for the very first time, it's so much more than just a sports event. Many anecdotes are told about the father and son who argue about absolutely everything, yet can still come together and watch a baseball game and somehow feel closer after a few hours without even talking. Perhaps it's because music, art, and sports are forms of recreation that involve the audience voluntarily on a subliminal or even spiritual level. Art can heal and reach unspoken levels of understanding and memory. Maybe that's why people cry at the opera, even though they can't understand the words. I've personally witnessed patients have breakthroughs at hospitals during volunteer piano performances. Scientific studies have proven that when hooked up to electroencephalogram brain monitoring systems, the members of an orchestra share very similar, almost identical brain waves, at least while performing together. And they deduced it's reasonable to apply that at least partially to the audience members themselves. The arts bring us all onto the same wavelength, literally. There are universal themes in stories and songs and movies across the barriers of war, hate, famine, and racism that bring people together. The arts humanize us. And as any good artist knows, or at least all of my former students, good art tells only 75% of the story and allows the audience to inject themselves into that last 25%, which is the precise point when a movie or a song becomes cherished and beloved. From Tin Pan Alley to the golden age of Hollywood and the modern entertainment business, one of the best ways to normalize Jewish culture and understanding has always been through the arts. Perhaps that's why the founders of BDS, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement against Israel, have worked so hard to encourage both a cultural and academic boycott of Israel worldwide. To cut Western society off from the arts and culture of Israel is to destroy that natural diplomatic pathway of empathy with Jews and Israel. As listeners of Talking Point know, it's been a never-ending battle to fight anti-Semitism that would erase and boycott Jewish voices and experiences from participating fully in activities. 
But luckily, we have some great ammunition on our side as well. Lana Millman is the founder of LiberateArt.net and has been the leading expert fighting the cultural boycott campaign against Israel since 2011. Her life mission is to educate others about the dangers of the boycott effort through international speaking engagements, interviews, and opinion pieces. As a Hollywood liaison, Lana has worked with hundreds of artists targeted by BDS, including Alanis Morissette, Cindy Lauper, and Pitbull. As an attorney and 20-year veteran of the entertainment industry, Lana's previous career included both business and creative positions at CBS, Warner Brothers, and Paramount. And in her new book, Artists Under Fire, The BDS War Against Celebrities, Jews, and Israel, Lana explains the connection between anti-Zionism and rising global anti-Semitism. She puts the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions campaign against Israel on trial, and she tells the stories of artists like Scarlett Johansson, Alicia Keys, Rihanna, Rolling Stones, and more, who are being used as pawns in BDS's destructive crusade. She's not afraid to call out a vocal group of artists led by Pink Floyd co-founder Roger Waters, who have joined this attack and created a star-studded battle between themselves and thousands of musicians, filmmakers, and authors who refuse to be cowed. Lana is a proud Jew, a visible Zionist, and a normal, nice person, which is pretty hard to find in Hollywood. And I'm so happy to welcome her to the show. Welcome, Lana. Well, thank you, Laura, and that was a beautiful opening. You expressed it so well, the importance of art, how it connects people to each other. That was very, that was beautiful. Oh, thank you. This is such a topic near and dear to my heart, and, you know, if I wasn't doing this, I would probably be doing the work you do. So I just love everything you do, and I'm so excited to feature you today. My pleasure. So I wondered if you could begin by telling our listeners how your own Jewish identity was formed when you were young and how it may have shaped your, your desire to become an attorney and basically just a little bit about the journey that led you to becoming one of our greatest leaders fighting against the cultural boycotts in Hollywood. I grew up in Los Angeles and Next to Hollywood, people always refer to it as Hollywood, but really the entertainment industry, people who work in the business or live throughout Los Angeles. I grew up in a very Jewish neighborhood in the entertainment capital of the world, really. My Jewish identity started primarily with my family. I was very, very close to my mother's side in particular, I grew up with elders who used a lot of Yiddish words. Or even though we were not religious, there was a very, very strong feeling of being part of a tribe. My neighborhood was Jewish. I remember there was a movie theater that we all went to, and when you called in to find out what was playing, the recording said, Shalom, Bubby, before telling you what the <laughs> yes, before telling you what the what was on the schedule. So it was a very, very strong feeling. And when I was very young, I was shocked when my mother told me that Jews were a minority, because after all, everyone I knew was Jewish. And then things 
changed for me very dramatically when I was nine years old, and my mother told me about the Holocaust. I have a very vivid memory of it. I was sitting on our white shack carpeting, looking up at her when she was sitting on the couch, and she told me about the horrors that had happened, what was happening to Jews who, for no reason other than they were Jewish, who were being tortured and starved and murdered, fathers, mothers, children. And at that moment, it was as if my DNA changed. And I understood that this tribe that I belonged to, a family and neighbors and community, was much more vast. And that we all shared in essence, a common destiny, no matter how different we are from one another, no matter how differently we may think about a subject, our futures are intertwined. And that was my connection with Judaism. I entered the entertainment industry because I think a lot of it was because it felt accessible. Most of my best friend in junior high and high school, her dad was a television producer, my best friend in law school. Her father was a television producer. It felt very, very accessible. And when I graduated law school, I knew I did not want to be in a big firm and that I was always loved storytelling, loved the movies, in particular, and so I threw my hat in the ring and landed my very first job outside of law school as an attorney at what was then Columbia Pictures Television, which is now Sony TV. My career progressed after that. I worked as a business affairs negotiator before ultimately transitioning to the creative side. I spent over 20 years as a creative executive at CBS Network, a bunch of studios. I worked as an independent producer, as a writer, before ultimately wrapping up that career. I got involved in what I'm doing now by, really, it was very fortuitous as I decided to wrap up that portion of my life, which was in 2010, 2011, that was the exact same time that the BDS movement was getting some traction in the entertainment field. And I was approached by members of the music industry, actually, who were very concerned about the impact it was potentially going to have on musicians and other artists who wanted to play in Israel. So I came on board, helped establish that organization before eventually transitioning and starting Liberate Art, which I now serve as the CEO of. Yeah, wow, and timing is everything, as you know, and I love that story about how you were inspired as a little girl. I think a lot of the activists I talked to talk about having that special connection. Something was made when they were young. And so, you know, kudos to your parents for 
for giving you that as well. Very important. Yes, um, absolutely. It's interesting since COVID has changed so many industries, a lot of people find themselves in similar pivoting points. And, and I think a lot of the people who are becoming activists now are, are also in a similar trajectory of, you know, right as they needed to do something else, all oh, this anti-Semitism is so bad. So in big and small ways, people are, are joining the cause, but, but you really have been doing a lot. Um, I want to talk about Liberate Art, but first could you start by explaining for anyone who doesn't know, uh, what is BDS and why should we be particularly concerned about the cultural boycott campaign against Israel? Well, thank you for that question. BDS stands for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. It is an international campaign that wants the world to isolate and ultimately delegitimize the Jewish homeland. That's the goal of it. It's calling for a boycott of Israel economically, academically, and culturally. The economic boycott which is probably the least successful wing of the campaign, calls on different individuals as well as organizations and other businesses to stop doing business with Israeli companies or, for that matter, any international company that does business with Israeli companies. It's calling for a lack of of communication between Israeli academics and academics throughout the world. It's calling for a a shunning, really. And there are examples where academics in American institutions have not only refused to meet with Israeli academics, but have refused to even write a letter of recommendation for a student who wanted to spend a year abroad in Israel. And then lastly, of course, we have the cultural boycott, which I'll get into in a little bit more detail. But the second prong, the divestment, is another aspect of an economic isolation campaign. For people who aren't familiar with the term, they're obviously familiar with the term investments where colleges and other major institutions, mutual funds, individuals will invest by either stocks or bonds in companies. So what this facet of the campaign is calling for is all of those groups and individuals to divest themselves of any holdings in Israeli companies, sell them off, and scour their mutual funds pressure the mutual fund advisors to avoid investing in Israeli companies. And that, I think, is going to become more of a threat as time goes on. The last facet is sanctions. This plays out in the international community, primarily the United Nations, where they have resolutions condemning uh, any country for misconduct. The overwhelming percentage of these resolutions 
slapping the wrists of countries, calling them evil, condemning their actions, go against Israel. And just to give you a little screenshot of this, between the years of 2015 and 2021, 75% of the resolutions uh, the entire time in the United States General Assembly went against Israel. And to put it in even more clarity, Israel has a population of 9 million people. And so versus 7.9 billion people on earth. So 1% of the total world population is getting 75% of the reprimands. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And I think that's why the UN is really just not trusted by so many people anymore because the bias is palpable. Well, unfortunately... Um, I wish you were right, but I think that's not true. I I think that's true to the educated. But in fact, those resolutions are used by academics, by politicians, by other people who are anti-Israel. They use it as proof of their false accusations against the Jewish homeland. And to make it really clear to people, there's a lot of obvious propaganda that mischaracterizes the BDS movement, but it is not about peace, freedom, or helping the Palestinians. It's a political campaign masquerading as a human rights movement. It denies the right of Jews to a home in their indigenous land, and it is spreading disinformation about Israeli Jews and stirring up Jew hatred worldwide. It's a very, very dangerous new development and the latest form of Jew hatred that is spreading around the world. That's an excellent point and really shows how anti-Semitism is metamorphosizing from a religion to a race to a country. It's not okay to criticize the Jew discriminating based on religion anymore, but they'll do it to the state of Israel, which happens to be mostly Jews. Yes, so, and, and um, establish as the Jewish homeland. Exactly. Right. So, so there are groups. The far right doesn't hesitate to implore classic Jew hatred, which directs its hatred towards Jews. It's a... a noun replacement. They are saying the same false lies Mm -hmm. about the Jewish people. But on the far, far right, for the Proud Boys and others, they are using classic anti-Semitism by accusing Jews of evil. Whereas on, on not just the left, but unfortunately sometimes not just the extreme left, they are making those same charges against the Jews of Israel. And it's very dangerous. And what makes the cultural boycott so dangerous is its ability to steal the brand, the name recognition, the publicity of celebrities to spread these lies. 
You know, it's very interesting. There's a chapter in my book that is called The Power of the Arts and Artists. And it talks about the soft power that you were mentioning up front, to bring, not only to bring people together, to raise awareness, to inspire as a catalyst for social change. It's, the arts are very, very powerful. Most of the time throughout history, and artists, by the way, have themselves are aware of their power, not just in what they create, but in terms of their ability just by their recognizability to disseminate information. So many artists have chosen different charities, different social issues that they want to promote because they know that when they speak, whether or not people agree with them, they get the message. People hear the message because celebrities make news. What the BDS movement has done is not just that, and there are a few artists that are Israel bashers and a few artists who support the BDS movement, but where they get their power is by hijacking the name and likeness of celebrities, of using that against their will to promote the propaganda. Because any celeb- international celebrity that wants to perform in Israel or visit Israel it, across the spectrum. It's mostly musicians, but it also applies to authors and actors and directors. When they want to do anything or support Israel in any way, the BBS advocates attack them personally and accuse them of supporting the crimes against humanity that they falsely accuse Israel of committing. So, for example, when Alicia Keys had booked a concert date on July 4th, I think it was 2014 or 2013, and she has a she's a huge supporter of children, and uh, she has a charity that supports children. So, what did they do? They accused Israel of killing innocent children, of being child abusers. And they attacked her, like they do other artists, in a multi-pronged fashion. They And that's basically the blood libel that they're yes. doing, just packaged up into Zionism, which, which a Jew would recognize, but you know, non-Jews may not. And it's very dangerous how they how they do that and manipulate it. Exactly right. That is exactly right. That is the classic blood libel. And that accusation dates back to the Middle Ages when Jews were accused of murdering Gentile children and using the blood to make Passover matzah. And it has morphed into a general charge of Jews murdering not just innocent children, but innocent people. Jews were accused of poisoning wells in the 12th century. They were accused of spreading the plague 
And and we saw that echoed again with COVID, where some people were blaming Jews for creating COVID in different ways. And I mean, there's yes. so many parallels constantly. Yes. And and examples of that was uh, Rosanna Arquette posted something on Twitter saying that Israel had the cure had for for COVID for over a year and was refusing to disseminate it because they wanted to make sure they could make as much money as possible. So that's not only a blood libel accusing Jews of murdering people, but also goes into the trope about the greedy Jews, right, who do anything for money. It's horrible. John also did that as well. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I think he didn't he take it back eventually, though? Well, um, they both but... they both do, which also goes to the power of raising your voice. People were mm-hmm. outraged. Mm-hmm. And John Cusack had posted an image which was straight out of uh, a Ku Klux Klan leader, which said you know, something to the effect, forgive me for misquoting it, but if you want to know... Uh, who has the power, look who you cannot talk about. And then it showed a a giant Mm -hmm. hand with the Jewish star on it. And then Michael Shea, uh, there was a a protest outside of Saturday Night Live that I helped orchestrate when he talked about in the middle of of COVID, when people are absolutely terrified, he he made a joke, quote unquote, about how Israel had announced that they had um, given vaccines to half of the population, and the joke was, I'm guessing that was the Jewish half. When in fact, obviously, it was available to everybody, and it was trading on a lie that was circulating about Israel withholding vaccinations from the non-Jewish population. Right, and if I recall correctly, there were even instances where Israel tried to give vaccines and sometimes the Hamas leaders uh, were not wanting it. They wanted it from somewhere else, not from Israel. Exactly. So, oh, good point. And that's exactly, that was yeah. actually the truth at that very moment is that they wanted to give it. And, and obviously in Hamas, those are not is, Israeli Arabs. Those, you know, they're not yeah. citizens of the United, of Israel, but still Israel was willing to, because it values life, which it does repeatedly, even with the people who attack it. Oh, I mean, and, you know, we, we at least you and I know that there are many instances where Palestinians and, you know, people from other countries will come to Israel for medical care. And, you know, Israeli physicians, they will treat you, you know, even if you're a Palestinian that just did something bad. They value life. And humanity, and we don't see that in the stereotypes anywhere. And unfortunately, Hollywood is a big part of those stereotypes, as the cultural trendsetters. I mean, it, it's you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. And so, I don't think there can be neutrality from Hollywood. It's it's really really disconcerting to me to see how, as a whole, the entertainment business has really joined a lot of this intersectionalism that has gone off the rails 
uh, of its original intention uh, and, you know, become a huge part of the problem. It's very disturbing. Well, you brought up a very interesting concept. And first of all, I think it's very, very important for people to know that the vast majority of celebrities and artists, entertainers, do not support the cultural boycott campaign against Israel. And hundreds of them have been very vocal about that, supporting Israel against the censorship campaign, because it isn't a censorship campaign, a BDS. It's trying to demand and or, or infiltrate, stand in between the artist and the audience and decide what's okay for audiences to see and hear. But so most of them are very much against it. They're very outspoken. But one of the main problems is that that information, the uh, number of celebrities who have been outspoken, who they are and what they've said, does not get circulated enough. And that's one of the right. things I've done as CEO of Liberate Art. And I do in the book, Artists Under Fire. There's an entire chapter which is called Artists Who Support Israel. And I tell you stories about who's out there and what they have done. And honestly, just the fact that they go to Israel shows tremendous support of the Jewish homeland. Because they get bombarded and attacked personally, professionally, their reputations are dragged through the mud, but they remain steadfast. And And so one of the things that I do, I have on my social media and also in my newsletters, I share that information. And I also run a gratitude campaign where in my newsletters I will give my followers the email address of the agents or public relations people for the celebrities who have, in fact, spoken out in in support of Israel so that they can write a personal thank you to those people. And they need to hear that. Yeah. I, I just love that. And you'll be joining us as entertainment contributor at the Jewish TV channel. So we definitely want to be featuring some of those action alerts that you'll be doing because it's so important for people. This is an industry that really relies on, on feedback and public opinion. Yes. And we know the other side is very organized. They have a lot of money. They've got a lot of manpower. They are really doing a great job. And we have to fight back and and raise our voices. Um, there, are, you know, whether it's Naomi Friedman's group, Stop BDS on Campus, or others, there are always action alerts that anybody from from home, from a hospital bed, anywhere, there's ready-made emails and things you can just literally copy and paste. They give you the email, and it and it's not just complaining about the negative stuff. It's also saying thank you for the positive stuff, um, which is so so very important. I mean. Not not a lot of people are doing that. I love it when Adam Sandler comes out with new things, you know, to sort of celebrating who's Jewish. And, you know, that's always really appreciated. It's it's that representation. So it's a really a really good thing. Yes, and people will stop 
and look at those things on social media when it has the face of a celebrity on it. So they are hearing positive things. And they're hearing one another thing that I do that I'll be sharing with the television station is or channel, excuse me, is uh, Jews who are very proud of being Jews, and they talk about what Judaism means to them and how they experience it. There is this Wonderful. feeling, I think, among a lot of Jews that they feel abandoned. But it, the information's out there. I've been doing this now, first of all, my career. I spent 20 years actually in the entertainment business, and now I film entertainment adjacent because I act as a liaison between Israel and slash anti-Semitism and Hollywood. So it's it's out there. And if you look at the enormity of the reach of celebrities, it's incredible. Katy Perry has uh, almost 110 million followers on Twitter. Kim Kardashian has... 335 million followers on Instagram. Shakira, 120 million on Facebook. When those artists post good things uh, about Israel, when they will acknowledge or give a thumbs up to a social media post that thanks them for going to Israel, the audience is vast and very importantly, international. A lot of the stuff that goes on in terms of, oh, boycotts, people standing outside, Trader Joe's telling people to boycott the company because it carries an Israeli product, that has an impact very locally. But international Mm -hmm. celebrities have an impact internationally. And they see their social media more often than you would think. And many of them, not all of them, of course, many of them will also respond personally. And you can kind of get that feeling when you see the post, whether it's their social media handlers or whether they themselves are responding. This is so true. And, you know, working in the international entertainment business and international A&R, I mean, one of the biggest, most coveted successes is to have an international crossover artist. It's very hard to do, even for some of these people to even break into the American market. Um, and so when when someone like Bella Hadid and some others, when they post a lot of just outright Palestinian propaganda, it has some devastating effects, as you know. And um, it's good that people speak out about that. Um, do you think that there's a generational difference in terms of who's willing to speak out? Like, should we expect less from someone young from Lourdes or, you know, something more from uh, Paul McCartney? Or, or should we treat everybody the same as far as our expectations for standing up? Because I, I know you wanted to talk a little bit more about how BDS really targets and manipulates the artists and celebrities. How bad is it? Well, yes, it is harder for the younger celebrity to understand that this will pass. 
one of the things that I did for about four years is I contacted the representative of every single art, international artist who was booked to perform in Israel. And I communicated first with an email, and I followed up with phone calls, and I would answer their questions and listen to their concerns and help them normalize what was going what was going to happen and because it's hard for your listeners to understand just how dramatic and all-encompassing these campaigns can be they are on social media with means that will have the artist's face and associate them with war planes, destruction, suffering. There are petitions that get circulated and sent to their representatives. There are protests outside concert halls along the way to Israel when they're making multiple stops. They send emails to their representatives, phone calls. And, of course, there's always tons of articles and blogs that are condemning the artists for going there that are usually based on the facets that I just mentioned, that these social media campaigns that, that are going on. So, yes, it's tougher for the younger artists because social media has been part of their lives forever. They're obviously less secure in their careers when you're when they're 27 than they are when they're 57. They have less money, Mm -hmm. less longevity, less seasoning just as a human being how to deal with things. So it is harder for them. And they are more vulnerable and more likely in general to back off and simply want to get out of the fray as opposed to more mature artists like Jennifer mm-hmm. Lopez, Paul McCartney, all of them, Kevin Costner, the, Helen Mirren. The list is extremely long of artists who have said, get out of my face. Get out of my face. I won't have anything to do with this. Yeah. But there yeah, are also young even... ones, you know, Justin Bieber, uh, Britney Spears. A lot of young ones also will stand up to this. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with handlers, too, uh, especially with the young ones. And, um, you know, I mean, and, and I mean, I'm sympathetic. They're building a brand also. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, Israel should be a brand everybody is is friendly to. So that's something with the PR of Israel. I think, you know, a lot of people have said, you know, we could be doing better. <laughs> we could talk about things beyond just the cherry tomato and ways and you know sometimes and we we could use a a makeover here guys (laughs) so we're we're, we're trying to do that but um yeah it is always really exciting when someone like Gal Gadot breaks out and really cuts through those barriers and even even better yet when someone like her gives back as well and doesn't become part of the problem so and she gets bullied too sometimes when she as a tweet for different things in Israel, she's gotten shade from people, but um, she always comes out on top, which is good. Yes, and that's one of the things I would explain to the artists and the representatives, that 
Yes, they're going to come out and attack you. It is not going to hurt your careers long term. You can speak your mind. You're telling the truth. And in the long term, even though it might feel frightening when you're in the moment, in the long term, it, it does not. I have not quite ever got around to this, but I've often thought of putting together a list of artists, just even just musicians who have gone to Israel despite being pressured to cancel and compare that to artists, musicians who support the boycott. And that would be mm-hmm. so visual and so powerful and such a great great weapon yeah. to convince them. Uh, the other thing, too, I had a wonderful conversation with a manager from a huge management company that represents, you know, really, really big-name musicians. And I was really delighted and pleased to say that when he, I just talked to him before a recent trip. I was heading to London. I was asked to speak to members of parliament on this very topic because they are considering legislation about whether to basically not allow venues that get public funding to support artists who support BDS. So they wanted my mm-hmm. input on that, and I was very delighted to do that. Great. So before I left, I called my friend and I said, how's it going? You know, because there's been an evolution. In the beginning, most of my job was normalizing this for the artist and Mm -hmm. explaining what the facts were about Israel. But now most of the representatives know what to expect, Laura. And if they're not advising their clients, it's unforgivable because although there are hundreds and hundreds of artists perform in Israel every year, it really varies a little bit and certainly is impacted if there's a conflict and during the pandemic. But there aren't that many representatives that book Israel. They tend to be the same people who book a particular type of tour, Europe, Mm -hmm. and then dipping down into Israel and sometimes other Middle East countries. So there's certain booking agents that do that tour. And they, so they already know that. So I was talking to my friend, and they're very, very big. And, you know, I was really proud to say that, first of all, he said that now that is having less and less impact on the artists themselves because they've weathered it. They have either personally, when they're coming back to Israel, they've seen it out there. They, it, so it's not the trauma it was at first. And not to say it's not still dangerous, but the other thing that made me really happy mm-hmm. is that he says whenever they have doubt, he sends them a copy of my book. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was like really great. And he says it's wonderful because it answers a lot of questions for them. And, you know, and he's also extremely knowledgeable about Israel and really supports it. But even though... That's our, great. Yes, it is great. And even though artists now are not as influenced by the propaganda that doesn't, that's not 
the primary reason why BDS uses celebrities. Their goal, if, if you can get a celebrity to cancel, that's a cherry on top. If you can get a celebrity to actually support your endeavor, that's like you know, one in a hundred. It's a major long shot. The benefit to them is the spread of the propaganda, that they can get mainstream media like CBS This Morning, The Guardian newspaper out of London, uh, uh, Yahoo.com, Yahoo News, to carry the story. And every time these publications, these media platforms, carry the story of an artist who's being asked to cancel, they repeat the false lies, the false accusations against Israel. So that's what people are reading over and over and over again. Yeah, I mean, that's that's basically how PR works is repetition mm-hmm. uh, and over and over. And it doesn't even have to be true. It's almost like Gobel's Law. So much of it happens. I, I think the music industry in particular is unwittingly often on the front lines of these things with new technologies, with different things, because of the nature of the business on a lot of levels I don't have to get into. But it seems like the musicians are often in the fray, the first and foremost, because of concerts and and the way files are. But when they first go in there, with the musicians, they have so much power. Uh, All entertainers have a lot of power, and it's always been something that people have sometimes regarded as a problem or a solution, even from Plato's time. Can you talk about why we should push back against BDS um, and why not just ignore them instead of giving them attention? BDS is rewriting history. They are erasing the Jewish connection to the land. They are spreading lies about the Jewish people that not only affects the Jewish nation, but Jews everywhere. They are playing on this primeval desire for a scapegoat. And we see the results of that. What's happening now is really frightening. I was just talking I was asked to do a be a guest in a high school on Zoom. It was a Zoom conference, and it was fantastic. There were 40 kids in the class, really attentive, really, really interested. And the teacher asked them, how many times a week would you say you hear anti-Israel propaganda, accusations, just in terms of your normal social media experience. These are not kids who are going out seeking Mm. that. And they said on average about twice a week. Mm. I'm surprised it's not more. I I find that a lot because these are not people who are going to websites, seeking it out, putting in, you know, this is just in terms of their life. And, you know, when you're 16, 17 years old, that's huge. Well, it's it's normalized, unfortunately. And, you know, the arts are a great way to unnormalize that and normalize the good stuff, too. 
Um, I, I mean, I agree. We we have to we have to fight back. I don't believe with the, the people that say, "Oh, it's just this person or that person." Just ignore them. You can't ignore somebody who has six times as many Twitter followers as there even are Jews in in the world. I mean, if you listen to my opening monologue from my interview with Thane Rosenbaum, I I, I figured out exactly the ratio of Jews to everything, you know, like one Jew to every 160 Christians and all the way down to one Jew to every three Kanye West followers. And it's, it's a numbers game. You have to pay attention. And those numbers are very scary. Well, I also want to add, first of all, you're absolutely correct. But here's the interesting thing. I don't think we need a lot of numbers to make a difference to interrupt this. We need the right language, and we need people to raise their voices. I think it's wonderful. People know a lot about Israel. They'll try to correct the facts. Yes, I think it's good to do that. But we also have to call them out for what they are as anti-Jewish racists. When they demonize and accuse half the Jewish population of the world as being bloodthirsty, as being evil, we ha- that's, when you demonize half the a population, that's racism. We have to put a name on it. I also encourage people to use the word Jew hatred. The word anti-Semitism, people say they don't know what it means. Uh, Mm -hmm. They can't be anti-Semitic if they're Semitic people. We know that's baloney. The term anti-Semitism was created by a German, and it was very specifically applied to hate and bigotry against Jews and the desire to eliminate Jews. That's what the word means and meant at the time. But people want to twist that around, so I think we should be very straightforward and call it Jew hatred. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. in terms of the power to raise your voice, just look at Dave Chappelle. I have lots of experience, and you can take my word for it or not, but I know that it is impactful when people speak up and reach out to these representatives who do convey it to their clients, that it does have an impact. But here's one that's public knowledge. Dave Chappelle, as I think most people know, has had a difficult time with the trans community. And he was scheduled to perform in a venue. I don't remember exactly which one. It was one of the northern states. And a 100 and 27 people signed a statement and sent it to the venue. And this was not a conservative venue. It wasn't a gay venue. It was just like, a, a, you know, kind of actually a little bit of a hipster venue and talked about how Dave Chappelle was they objected to him because of what he said and the jokes he has made about the trans community. The event was canceled the day before. Were, were this, yeah, when you say 127 people, are these you know notable people? Are these no, everyday people? No, 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 yeah. regular folks. 
regular folks who signed a statement. That's why when I do speaking engagements, there's usually roughly around 100 people in the room, give or take, and I use this example. And then I stop and I look around the room. And I say to them, if you wrote a, a letter, you signed a petition and got one or two other people to sign that same petition, you can have an impact. And that's exactly what happens. Another thing that people can do is, first of all, most of the Jewish organizations are really on top of this right now, so that's wonderful. But if you belong to support any Jewish organization, you can write them and ask them to speak out. And that certainly has an impact. It doesn't take that many people. I watched this grow from its inception. Because even though the cultural boycott campaign was technically born in 2004, 2005, it didn't have any headwind until Actually, coincidentally, as I came on board, it had started headwind in 2010, and I started this fight in 2011. So I saw it grow from like 26 people signing a petition to oftentimes hundreds nowadays. And we don't know, by the way, how many of those are actually unique signers because people can have multiple emails and sign up on you know in under multiple names but that has an impact that has an impact people need to get be engaged people need to speak out and you know this is a problem we have to address on multiple facets in our lives but i really underscore the importance of reaching celebrities and entertainers and artists because of their followings, because of their reach, because it impacts the way they feel about their work, the movies they make, the songs they write. You, The listeners can have an impact on that by speaking up. And we see it all the time where celebrities like you mentioned the hadith so even they and they're pretty hardcore have had the experience where they had to take something down and here's like here's a, a short chelsea uh handler uh, uh, took took something down rosanna arquette dua lipa nick cannon i interviewed nick cannon he had made these outrageous comments which is part of a particular faction of um, black Hebrews, uh, that's how they refer to themselves, that deny our connection to the, to the land. And he heard from people when he did a feature on his podcast. And he seemed, he seemed very genuine when I spoke to him in terms of his regret in terms of his retraction, and in terms of his decision to never repeat those false, uh, you know, false yeah. again. Penelope I would Cruz, love to hear that. Javier Bardem. 
I mean, the list is very long of people who who got heard from the public who said, that's a lie, it's spreading Jew hate, and take it back. And they do. Even Kanye oh, I didn't West, know that. Who, who's like a monster, <laughs> is now trying to backtrack. Right. Yeah. What, what did you think of uh, Dave Chappelle? Do you think he was affected at all from the Saturday Night Live event? Because that one was particularly disturbing to me. Yes, yes. Well, we will we will see. And it's not just Dave Chappelle, but um, you know, I'm, uh, it's also Saturday Night Live. Uh, Lauren Michaels, who obviously approved the bit, but we, you know, we will see. I was again part of a group who protest not Dave Chappelle, but we. It was. Michael Shea, that we organized a protest. And part of it, too, is to to bring in media to cover those stories when we do protest. You know, this is something that we chip away at. But the fact that people are discussing that, you know, comics have a different sensibility, but we've seen comics backing off of all sorts of subjects because uh, people object to it. And uh, you know, I have I'm of two minds about that. I believe in the freedom of comics. I believe in f- freedom of artistic expression. But I, I am deeply concerned when they demonize the Jewish people any at any time, but particularly at this time in history when things are very dangerous and we're facing bias and. Racism from all all directions. Yeah, yeah. It's when I worked in comedy at, at Second City, we had a philosophy about it that you can make fun of people as long as you are, you know, you, you either make fun of both sides if it's politics or if it's people. You can have a bigoted person, but it's, you want the audience to be laughing at them not with them. Mm-hmm. Uh Archie Bunker, you know, Archie Bunker would be the perfect model of that. And mm-hmm. but that's not what happens and I mean I could do a whole show about Dave Chappelle. It was very clever and manipulative how he laid it out. So yes, you know it it, it it was just so stunning and he wove in and out of it very skillfully and that he had enough that you couldn't disagree with and enough that you could laugh with in a wholesome way that, but then he snuck in all the other stuff and it was was just like one big awful sausage. He was just especially dangerous the way he did that. And uh, just back to what you had said earlier, it only takes so few phone calls or emails as you're Mm -hmm. saying. And I hope, for the activists listening to this, the people running Facebook pages who feel like, oh, I hear people, you know, my members, they don't, they don't do our action alerts enough. It doesn't take a lot. If you've got a couple thousand uh, and 1% do that, you've affected somebody's day. They, they've heard it. So, you know, never underestimate the power a normal person can make now in the present time with all the technology we have, can the average person make an impact like this? You know, this was decades ago or centuries ago. We couldn't do that. So, you know, that's why we always now have we them. Can. Now we can. That's and right. when you write the representatives of these artists, 
they get them. Maybe their assistant sees it first, passes it along, and, you know, especially kind words. And if you just talk, it's not about making a factual argument when you talk to celebrities. You don't have to be an expert. I think a lot of people are intimidated about raising their voice because the enemies of Israel and the old-fashioned anti-Semites keep throwing. It's like a -a whack-a-mole game. Every time you knock down one thing, they come up with another vicious lie, demonizing us. So they feel like many Jews feel like they have to be, not just Jews, but friends of Jews, feels like they have to be experts and they have to have a factual counter-argument to every lie that's spoken and launched against Jews. You do not have to do that. You don't. All you have to do is speak from your heart and tell people how you feel, what this means to you. And that's exactly what you need to do with artists. You don't have to educate them about Israel's contributions to the world. or You just tell them how you feel being a Jew today. And how you feel about, are you worried about your children? Are you uh, uh, scared? Are you uh, uh, afraid to speak out? How is this affecting you personally? And how do you feel about what they've done and said? Are you grateful? Does it inspire you? Did you send what you read, a meme or something that that you saw in my newsletter or on my socials? Did you share it with someone? How did you know? Mm-hmm. Talk about how you feel. You don't have to be an expert on this subject to be engaged. Well, and the core of what you're saying there is to humanize it. You know, we mm-hmm. we tend to uh, cerebralize it, if you will. We tend to give them war and peace in the whole 3,000-year history, while the other side is using, really, they're using Hollywood effectively on a micro level, too, of just really humanizing, even if it's false and manufactured sometimes. Uh, You know, the fear, the this, the image of the boy in his father's arms, which we found out was not even real, it was Pallywood. Um, So, you know, we have to talk about our kids, how our kids are being hurt, our human rights. And so it's just... And you how know, they're I, being I, I, excluded and how they there's pressure on them to denounce and, and to separate themselves from who they are. We're living in a world now where every other group, every other minority is being encouraged and cheered by embracing who they are. And Jews are the only ones who are being pressured to move away from who they are, who have to deny their religious connection to the land or how they feel about being Jewish and supporting Israel in order to be included. They have to renounce that. Only I mean, it's the same people that openly fight for LGBT rights are telling Jews to be in the closet right now. Yes. And, I mean, it goes completely, it's illiberal is what it is. And what's really just confounds me, and it always did, is that for the adage that Jews control Hollywood, 
those Jews that are in Hollywood often, if anything, go out of their way to avoid, exactly, you know, looking like any appearance of preferential treatment towards Jews, almost so much to being unfair and, you know, not casting Jews in even ethnic roles, you know, or anything but ethnic roles at times. And so, I mean, do you have any thoughts on that, of how leaders are maybe not stepping up as much as they should? Well, I again, I think that, well, first of all, we're in a transition right now, but I think we have to acknowledge and share information about the people who are stepping up so that it's, first of all, it doesn't feel so bleak. Second of all, we encourage not just them, but other people to do that. It's not just a stick. You need a carrot to motivate people, and that's extremely important. And then second of all, yes, right now we're in a period where there's a lot of depictions of Jews, particularly religious Jews, that is extremely negative. Mm Mm-hmm. And where they are sort of seen as a pariah of society. Did you see the movie You People? I haven't seen it, but I've heard all about it, and it sounds horrible. It's as bad as you can imagine. And it's for the listeners, it's a a story of a supposedly... A, a Jewish guy getting together and the romantic relationship he has with a black woman prior to meeting, prior to getting married, but from their meeting all the way up to their wedding. And Julia Louise Dreyfus plays the mother of Jonah Hill, who plays the main lead character. And it is loathsome how they depict her as a upper-middle-class Jewish woman and her what, they, what they've written in in terms of that character's profound insensitivity. It's so outrageous. I've never in my life have experienced that personally. Uh-huh. And to put that in a movie is despicable. At the end of the movie, the character apologizes to the black girlfriend, fiancé, and apologizes to her and the black community on behalf of the Jewish community. That's how bad it is. And that's on Netflix. I mean, there, there has to be more responsibility. I mean, you, you can't put things out there and not expect there to be consequences. And and, and I I say shame on the actors that take these roles. There are people that don't want to do certain things for reasons. And clearly someone has conscientiously made the decision that not only is this not bad for their brand, but it's actually good for it. And it reminds me of talking to our, our academics who talked about how even untenured professors will speak out against Israel. It's fashionable. It's safe. You know, yeah. um, whereas, whereas even a tenured professor takes a big risk to speak out for Israel. And just quickly, I know we're running out of time, but okay. with with everything, and I mean, of course, criticism, no one is saying you can't 
criticize Israel. That, that's not the, the end game here. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about IRA. You know I started the We Need IRA campaign. And um, is it possible to be critical of Israel and its policies without being anti-Semitic? And how might Hollywood, how might that apply to Hollywood? Well, of course it is. If you couldn't criticize Israel without being anti-Semitic, the Jews in Israel would have nothing to talk about. I mean, Israel, <laughs> I mean, you can't get into a cab in Israel without the cab driver talking about politics. But the key here, and one of the things I underscore in Artists Under Fire, is to understand and recognize when the Jews are being demonized, when the conversation and criticism focuses on uh, evil, on on not solving the problem, but on landing accusations. Um, like there's a difference between you can discuss housing in Jerusalem without accusing the Jews of land theft. When you accuse the Jews of being of stealing land, you are employing a classic anti-Semitic trope about greedy, thieving Jews. So mm -hmm. make a different argument. It's all fair game, but don't employ classic anti-Semitic lies to make your point. And right. in terms of the entertainment business, yes, you can talk about issues, you can talk about hot issues, but right now there's been an overabundance to focus on on Israeli transgressions real or imagined. I, people need to really look at themselves. And if you're going to talk about that, you have an obligation to educate yourself and present the, the Jewish, the Israeli point of view as well as in terms of what their lives are like and how they have to run to bomb shelters and what it's like to have missiles pointed at you from every direction and put it in perspective. It's, you know, you, you see these things and they, in film, it's very easy just to kind of put in a soft lie about yeah. the region. And one of the things, too, I'm, I'm getting involved in and just thinking about it and figuring out how I could be most impactful is on that exact front. Because every other group right now, every other minority has boards and people that the entertainment industry goes to to clear material. Is this accurate? Is this a proper reflection of your community? And mm -hmm. we need the same thing. We need the same thing. I'm surprised it doesn't exist already. No, it doesn't. Wow. Yeah. But how but, would we do that? Because there, there are some Jews that, you know, love criticizing Israel, um, or that I would say are part of the problem even. And then there are others, you know, how, how would that look like for, for the Jewish community to have such a board? Well, I, I'm in the process of discussing it with uh, another person who's very active, and one of it is, first of all, just to do the basic research and get some data that will to present 
to the filmmakers and the decision makers and the executive suites that will let's show them how when Jews are mentioned as Jews, what is the uh, how are they depicted? Are they depicted yeah. positively, neutrally, or negatively? Let's show them that those facts. That's a great way to begin. So that it's a reflection. It's holding up a mirror. This is what you're doing. And I, I agree. That's that's the right way to do it is just let the facts speak for themselves. Because if you, you know, this reminds me of just with how feminism did it. Then they come out with the facts of how many curse words there are for a woman versus the number of, of words for a man. And, you know, little statistics like that or the number of times a woman apologizes a day those numbers are memorable. And when yes. people know the statistics of how much incrementally worse the anti-Semitism is on a college campus where there's like a Students for Justice of Palestine chapter that has Israel Apartheid Week, you know, which is like a month now. I mean, the, the facts speak for themselves. No one can say, oh, their Jews go controlling Hollywood. It's no, we're not asking for anything more or anything less than everybody else gets. It's really that's that right. simple. And, and and that's what IRA, the, the, the definition of anti-Semitism is for. And then there's many definitions going around now. Um, you know, the, the JDA, uh, the Jerusalem definition, mm. uh, kind of ignores the basic things, you know, the ideas of this sneaky way that they hide against by, you know, they say Zionist instead of Jew. Uh, and so if, you know, without that IRA definition, you you don't get the protection from what is really the worst form of anti-Semitism right now. So yes, yes. I, I think that's important and to it's, mention. It's, it's, it's the worst because right now it's growing at the fastest rate and people, are, many are simply misguided into thinking that they're on the right side of history, that the Jews of Israel have been sufficiently demonized that they think they're doing good by working to eliminate the homeland. So that's what makes it really scary is when people are armed and feel that it's they're doing justice by having you get gone. So that's yeah, that's that's very frightening. And also the Jerusalem definition that I read seemed to go out of its way leaving an open door, not for criticizing, by the way. It's not about criticizing Israel, which is fair game. It's about demonizing Israel. And that's a huge distinction. And everyone viscerally knows the difference. You can criticize another human being without accusing them of being evil. And when you demonize people, armies have known this from the beginning of time, that you get a soldier. How do you get someone to kill somebody else. Well, you demonize that other person. You demonize them to such an extent that an ordinary man or woman feels righteous about killing another human being. So that's why it's so dangerous right. to have this demonization right. going on. And right and now, education I- is the key. Education is the key, and there's almost there's nothing better than entertainment or edutainment, as I call it, uh, to to help educate people. And sometimes it means it's our own people, our own children, 
that need to be educated and have a better, you know, Jewish yeah. identity. That's that's why I begin every interview with asking people about their Jewish identity and how it was formed. You know, not never to judge, just to just to hear the evolution for some people. Some people had it early, some people had it late. Um just last week I spoke to a very interesting woman off the record. I, I hope she'll come on, but had been a very active part of the anti Zionist BDS campaign and once she got educated she felt horrific about what she had done and I was just fascinated to find out you know well how how did this happen how did you get into it because she's a basically nice person and she wants to you know turn it around now but she didn't know and even though you know her own parents hadn't told her much she she was raised Jewish and so you know and it was the popular it was what all the cool kids were doing basically fascinating i hope she'll come and talk to us in yes, some well, form but it, it begins but, at, it begins at the dinner table you know parents mm-hmm. need to talk about about being jewish and about israel you know, they need to do it at the dinner table but again i mean i don't want listeners to feel that you need to answer every lie that you need to be a professor to be a, a, on the debate team no, you don't. You have to feel solid in who you are. Just know a couple of key bits of information. And you have to, I think people need to be inspired. We need to get them past their fear of speaking out. There is this terrible oh, fear, I think, that Jews hold in their hearts just from the 2,000 years that we were in the diaspora, that we always had a duck and cover. So we're, we have a homeland now. We have a homeland. So yeah. it's in addition to the homeland that we have is as citizens of the countries we're in. So people need to feel inspired to speak out, to know it's important, to know that they don't, they can just, they can talk about how they feel and that we have to change our position from defense to offense. Again, you you said in the opening that the book puts BDS on trial. That's an offensive position. The point is, is not is let's challenge their morality, what they're doing, what their goals are. BDS has been around for twenty years. What has it accomplished for the Palestinian people? How how has it made their lives better in any way, shape, or form? I don't know anyone who can answer that. What they'll answer is that it has. Uh, exposed Israel, quote-unquote. Well, how does that make the Palestinian lives better? It doesn't. What has it done is that it's stirred up Jew hatred across the planet. It's endangered a minority in this world, a minority that represents what? 0.2% of 1% of the world population? That's what the results are. The proof is in the pudding. Let's go. Let them answer those questions. 
Let's go, you know, mm-hmm. it's, again, you, it, half the time I find that when, like, I, I, I've learned something, like, around the dinner table or whatever, when I'm not looking to get engaged in any kind of hot debate or when anyone attacks me, I like to ask them questions about what they're saying. And mm-hmm. it's amazing how many times people have no answers. You know, if you ask someone, if they when they talk about Palestine as a country, you ask them what what its borders are. Hmm. Ask them if Tel Aviv is in Palestine. Wow. You know. Yeah. Like, even even the terminology is telling. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I think we should be using the word occupation the minute someone says that. I know. I know where they stand. Unfortunately. Or or the, or you know that they don't have another word. So the other word being, you know, disputed territory. But anyway, I think the main thing is that, yes, the more people learn, I hope people buy the book, I think they'll find the stories really interesting because it's all about celebrities. I explain all these things with you know, within the entertainment industry, there's plenty of opportunities to cover all this material. It makes for a good read. I think it's very, very accessible for p- kids in high school and even given the right student in junior high because they're getting lots of negative information as early as elementary school, to be honest. So I, I think that's really important for people to understand that they have the power, they have the knowledge, and they it's you know up to them to, to move forward and make a difference. 127 people got Dave Chappelle canceled. Yeah, that's just wonderful. If you have time to stick around, we have an audience question. Okay. Um, um, Tamara asks, uh, would you share a few inspiring examples of artists who've defied BDS and supported Israel? And she adds, a lot of people who fight anti-Semitism regularly, including activists, sometimes seem to downplay the cultural boycotts as somehow less important than other forms of overt anti-Semitism. People tell me to just ignore Kanye West, Dave Chappelle, to stop talking about Ben and Jerry's, don't give Roger Waters any more attention, etc. What should we say back when our fellow Jews tell us to ignore the, the cultural Hollywood boycotts? So I think a few success stories would be fun to hear. Well, yes, there are numerous ones. One, for example, Jay Leno. Jay Leno's a tremendous supporter of Israel. He has been to the country numerous times. He describes it as an oasis in the Middle East of freedom. He accurately depicts it as the little guy. He also has made himself available to different Jewish and Israeli organizations. Uh, in terms of being a host or an MC, so he's an outspoken supporter of Israel. Deborah Messing has been fabulous. Yes. She you know, has spoken out for Israel. She mentions she gets you know a whooping on Twitter for doing so, but she holds her ground. She speaks out against anti-Semitism. She. Uh, and talks about the 4,000-year connection uh, history that the Jews have had 
to Israel. She was the first to to speak up about the Women's March being anti-Semitic, too. Yes. Yes, you are. You're right about that. You're right about that. I forgot about that. Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's been fabulous. Uh, In in 2014, first of all, you know, he's a supporter of the Simon Wiesenthal uh, Center. And in 2014, I got together with a bunch of other key members, behind-the-scenes players, lawyers, agents, etc. And this was during Operation Protective Edge, I believe that was, in 2014. And Bardem and Penelope Cruz had signed a letter along with a bunch of other Spanish artists accusing Israel of genocide. And there was starting to be this wave of other artists speaking out and and casting false aspersions against Israel in the middle of this conflict that they did not start. And we circulated a statement in support of Israel's right to defend itself. Well, one of the hardest things that happens when you want to do that, and it was a very strong statement. I thought it was really lovely, too. It was really nicely written. But is to get the first, say, half a dozen of big names to come on board and endorse this statement. And Arnold Schwarzenegger was one of them. So was, by the way, uh, Seth Rogen and Bill Maher. They were among the first people in the industry to sign on this letter. And then we circulated, and it was a spectacular list. Uh, there were a lot of people who were in front of the camera, but it was particularly filled with people behind the scenes, executives, directors, writers, Aaron Sorkin, et cetera, et cetera. So there are a lot of top people inside the entertainment industry that signed on. And it was really See, And it's important. so important that the activists talk about this too and not treat Hollywood like it's, you know, a bunch of silly, good-looking people. You can't ignore soft power because soft power always becomes hard power. And the influence and the trendsetters, I mean, that stuff is real. That's very real. I mean, Pallywood works for a reason. So we've got to, you know, not underestimate this stuff. And for the people that get burnt out, you got to celebrate the good, too. I mean, yes. I, I just saw this fabulous video by Arnold Schwarzenegger that I had not seen. Like yes. a five or six minute video. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Yes, and, wow. and, 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 and tell the listeners what it's about. He had gone to Auschwitz, uh, and he talks about it in this video, and he is talking to extremists on the right. And he's saying, don't throw your life away by going down this dark alley. It's very, it's wonderful, wonderful. And yes, I share that as well. And he needs to get thanks from people. I, You know, there's a lot of people out there doing that. Uh, Reese Witherspoon, when, when during like the Kanye thing, when things were really, really hot, she spoke out. And obviously, she's not Jewish. But, yes, there's a lot of people that do that, and they need support, and we need to be talking about it. And so that will, you know, 
there is something about preaching to the choir too. Everyone says, and it's certainly true, that we need to get beyond that. And yes, I couldn't mm-hmm. agree with that more. But our choir needs to feel supported. And therefore, yes. we do need to share these things with them. We do a- need absolutely. To yeah, and I, and I love Robert Kraft's Blue Square campaign yeah. um, with the up, upstanders. And, you know, I think it's not a coincidence that Schindler's List features a non-Jew, too, you know, because it, it's, I, I know for me, when I'm having a bad day and I've seen, you know, one too many obnoxious memes and I just think, gosh, are we making a difference? When I see a video of Club Z kids being happy or I see something with a non-Jew standing up for Israel, I mean, it's just like, oh, it just inflates me. I always feel better. So, I mean, just never underestimate the power of of just standing up for other people. And, you know, the funny thing is as Jews, we stand up for everybody. We take for granted that, of course, we're going to stand up for everybody, but we, we don't necessarily expect others to stand up as much for ourselves and maybe we should maybe, maybe that's something oh, we for should sure. re-examine. Oh, for sure we should and there are people out there who will and do and we need to embrace them so yeah yeah we yeah should. they are there when and we need to speak up for ourselves this home there's so much movements that are going on right now <clears> that started with people within the community and then they get allies outside of the community, and they're making changes. Yeah. And I, b- I believe that this is possible. Well, Lana, I could talk to you all day. You are a woman after my own heart with the work you're doing, and it's just so wonderful. Um, be- before we go to the lightning round, uh, can you just uh, tell people again your website and the name of your book? Yes, it, the website is liberateart.net, liberate as in set it free, because uh, liberateart.net. You can also usually find me if you just type in Lana Melman. But that's a great, great resource because that will direct you to all sorts of places. I'm all over social media. You can either find me under Liberate Art or under my name, Lana Melman. And the book is the the book is Artists Under Fire: The BDS War Against Celebrities, Jews, and Israel. I think your listeners will find it to be an excellent textbook, as well as a toolbox for how to be part of the change. Wonderful, wonderful. And we'll be featuring some of those nuggets on the Jewish TV channel in the near yes. future. So Please do. That yes. will be wonderful as well. We're excited. So so just a quick lightning round. Why are you proud to be a Jew? Well, of course, I'm very, very proud of our accomplishments, what we've contributed to the world, everything from science, the arts, the legal systems that we've created. The Jews, the Israel is the, the Jews are the the oldest people who are, still are the, have the same religion, speak the same language, have, as they did 
4,000 years ago and right now are living in the same place that they were living in three, 4,000 years ago. So that's really extraordinary. I'm very, very proud of how we have kept ourselves together and have reconstituted ourselves and reconstituted the Jewish homeland. It makes me very proud. Mm-hmm. Who are your Jewish role models? Well, I would have to say people inside the entertainment industry. I think that the gifts that they have given the world has just been tremendous. Uh, If you look at the history of Hollywood, how it was founded by Jews, the gift is tremendous. I really admire them because they're wonderful storytellers that have given the world uplifted people, helped connect people, and have really made a wonderful contribution. What concerns you most about the present situation relating to the Jews? I'd have to say erasure, how we're all very familiar with Holocaust denial, but what's going on by erasing the Jewish connection to the land of Israel is equally as dangerous, and I'm deeply concerned of the, about the consequences of rise, raising, rising Jew hatred and the burden that is falling on the shoulders of young people, how they're being forced to choose between their identity and social acceptance. Yeah. What makes you mad? The the endless repetition of anti-Jewish lies, the same lies that have been circulating for hundreds of years, we're still having to face that. It's very, very. It makes me makes me deeply concerned and angry. And that and that anti-Jewish hate is being treated as a second-class racism, unworthy of mm-hmm. condemnation, dismissed. Mm-hmm. For those who look up to you, what do you want them to remember? I want them to remember that they are powerful and that where we go from here is in their hands and they can make a difference. And I hope they use the book as a source of not just information, but as a toolbox on how to proceed. And finally, what's your outlook on the future of the Jewish people? Are you hopeful? I'm always hopeful. We are living in a time of terrible chaos and strife, but also change. I think it is right for us at this moment in time to demand an end to Jew hatred. Well said. Lana Melman, we want to thank you for being with us today. You are doing such important work, not only fighting against BDS in the arts, but also building bridges with non-Jewish allies and uplifting the spirits of your fellow Jews with Jewish pride pieces. And we're excited to welcome you as entertainment contributor. And I know we'll be talking to you again soon. Yes, thank you. I look forward to it and look forward to connecting with your audience. Please feel free to reach out to me through my website, liberateart.net, and I'm always happy to hear from people.
and answer their questions, and I tour the United States and internationally talking about this issue and my book. So I am always available to discuss that as well. Great. Well, that's it for this edition of Talking Point. Tune in next time when we go from Hollywood to Pollywood with Richard Landis as he discusses the systemic manipulation of facts by journalists covering the Middle East conflict. For the Jewish TV channel, I'm Laura Kessler. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Talking Point on Jewish TV channel, the voice of Jewish communities worldwide. We look forward to seeing you again.